Well, God's word says, you know, if we don't praise the Lord, the very rocks will cry out. So I'm glad there are no rocks crying out in here this morning because we're worshiping the Lord together. Praise the Lord. We will continue in the book of Mark. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. <clears throat> we'll continue our journey through the book of Mark in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And Jesus has come. Jesus has come. He is healing the lame. He's touching lepers and making them whole and clean. He's making the blind to see and the deaf to hear. He is casting out demons and he is forgiving the sins of those who trust in him and have faith in him. He's preaching the gospel to the poor. He's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners of all people. He is shattering the self-righteous religious beliefs of the day. And that's what I love about this section of text that we're in right now. He's, he's calling tax collectors as disciples, and he's eating and drinking with them. And, and he's, he's, he's just shattering the religious self-righteousness of the day. And our text today is a continuation in some ways of our text from last time, where Jesus has just been with Levi, uh, or Matthew, as, his other, uh, as he's called, uh, and his tax-collecting, sinning buddies. They've been hanging out and eating and drinking and having a great time, and the Pharisees see this and are deeply disturbed that a rabbi would act this way. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, they ask. And Jesus tells them, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I love Jesus' response. He just cuts right to the heart. Shatters religiousness and self-righteousness and just cuts right to the heart. And so we pick up today in Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 18, and it is a continuation of this dialogue with these Pharisees and others who are there. <clears throat> Look at verse uh, 18, chapter 2 of Mark. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine skin into old wine, new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the new and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Now, if you read this account in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, it's in all three of these synoptic gospels which means same eyes that's what the word synoptic means it means same eyes they they are telling the account of jesus and his ministry through very similar eyes very different from the book of john uh, you read john and it does it, a lot of things just aren't there that are in the others and things that are in the others aren't in john 
So it's not one of the synoptic gospels. That's what that, that term means. So if you read this account in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it seems that both John's disciples and the Pharisees are the people that have come to Jesus to ask him this question. It's not just the Pharisees. They want to know, why are they fasting, the Pharisees and the disciples of John? Why, why are they fasting, but Jesus and his disciples, they don't fast? Now, fasting is a practice uh, by nearly every religion in the world. It's also done for medical reasons. There, there are lots of reasons people fast. Uh, and fasting, what is fasting, by the way? Well, fasting is not going fast. Some of the kids might be like, what is he talking about going fast? Is he, these people driving race cars or something? No, fasting is a practice of abstaining from food. That means not eating, simply not eating, not drinking, for a period of time for a specific reason. That's just a very simple definition. That's what, a, that's what fasting means. So if someone you hear someone talking about their fasting, that means they're not eating, not drinking, or a combination thereof. That's the typical meeting. It usually has to do with food and drink. So I'm not going to eat or I'm not going to drink for a period of time for a specific reason. <clears throat> and for any number of reasons. Some people do this because they want to feel closer to God. Some people do this because they want to be more healthy. There's all these kinds of health crazes around fasts, you know, it's, uh, you can find one everywhere. And so that's what fasting is in simple worldly terms. Now the fast that John's disciples and the Pharisees are talking about is one of their own tradition, not the one prescribed in the Old Testament law. The twice-a-week fast was a major expression of Orthodox Judaism during Jesus' day. They would fast twice a week. These religious leaders in the community and people that wanted to be like them had come up with this tradition where they would fast twice a week. But the Old Testament law prescribed only one fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29 and 31. There was a fast prescribed on the Day of Atonement to repent of sin and be broken over sin. That's what the Day of Atonement was for, and the fast corresponding to it. <clears throat> and so you can understand their confusion and concern, right? I mean, these are the religious leaders. These are the self-righteous ones. These are the ones who are supposedly holy and leading the community in holiness and righteousness towards God, the Pharisees and even John's disciples considered themselves that way. They were thinking they were so righteous and good with God, and part of that thinking was that their behavior of fasting was right and good, and that it was earning them favor with God and the praise and approval of man. So you can understand their concerns, like, hey, this guy Jesus and his disciples show up on the scene, and they're not like us. They're not following things the way we do it. What's going on here? can't go around saying you're like close to God and not acting like us. We fast and you don't. Therefore, there's something wrong with you. What's wrong with you? It's kind of the attitude we see from them. And we know we ha they have this kind of self-righteous attitude. I'm not just making up this story. Uh, we know this from the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9. Let me just read it. You'll find it in Luke 18, starting at verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Be careful here, brothers and sisters. 
It's easy to point a finger and say, oh, look at those Pharisees. Look how they are. But we can turn that finger right around and point it right at ourselves. Because we walk around so often thinking that we are just like this. We're righteous and we treat others with contempt. May it never be. And he tells this parable, so listen up. Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, <coughs> the other a tax collector. Here we go, these sinners and tax collectors again, right? <laughs> it's tax season too, right? <laughs> this is right in there. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm sure he lifted his hands and made a big show. That's kind of how they were. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Points right over there to the tax collector in the temple. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, to give a tithe, that's like a 10% or a percentage of all that you get. That's a tithe. But the tax collector, standing far off, so he, he wasn't near the altar. He was standing far off, ashamed probably to even be there, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. <clears throat> you see the humility here. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, God sinner. You see the difference in the prayers? Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so, these disciples of John and the Pharisees want to know from Jesus, why do you and your disciples not fast, Jesus? And they're coming from that position of that tax collector in the parable. If you want to be religious and close to God, Jesus, and you and your disciples need to fast like we do. They don't understand at all the right purpose of fasting. And Jesus uses the opportunity to correct their wrong thinking, as he always does, doesn't he? So why do you and your disciples not fast, Jesus? He answers them with three illustrations. The first, about the purpose of fasting, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. The next two, about his gospel of grace. Let's look at verse 19 again, back in our text. Mark chapter 2, verse 19. So they ask him the question, why do you not fast? Why do you and your disciples not fast? And he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And so the main point of his response is found right here in verse 19. Fasting at its essence, is not a physical behavior you do out of duty or ritual to earn favor with God or to get praise from other people for being religious. Fasting is a hunger in your soul for God. If you don't get any other point of this message, mark that one. Fasting is is done because of a hunger 
in your soul for God. That's what biblical Christian fasting is. A longing and a hunger for God. And Jesus is saying to them, God is here. God is here. Listen to Psalm 63, a Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And you get a sense for this kind of a hunger for God that I'm talking about here. David writes, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Are you hungry for Jesus like that? That's the question I've been faced with all for the last several weeks as I've been preparing this message. Ryan, are you hungry for Jesus like that? Or are you hungry for things from him? Right fasting among believers happens when our souls want God more than our stomachs want food. We fast as believers because we want God more than anything in this world, even food. Fasting is not to be a religious ritual to earn favor from God or to seek the praise of men. The practice of fasting comes from the heart out to our behavior. And so, brothers and sisters, beware of books and even sermons on fasting. <laughs> There's no end to the number of them that will prescribe ways for you to fast in order to increase your holiness and favor with God. And if you're not careful, you'll end up like that Pharisee that thought he was so great and so righteous and so thankful that he wasn't a sinning tax collector. The Pharisee did not leave the temple justified before God. The humble, repentant tax collector did. Fasting comes from a hunger and a thirst for God that is stronger than our hunger and our thirst for this world. And we can see this illustrated further in the parable of the sower of Mark chapter 4. I'm just going to summarize that a bit. You remember that parable, and we're going to get into that in future weeks here. The farmer sowed some seed, and some of the seed fell on various types of soils, some on the hard ground, some on the rocky ground, some among thorns, and some on the good soil. The seed that fell among the thorns represents the ones who hear the word, and it springs up, and they're excited about it. And they talk about Jesus and God, and oh, I've found Jesus, and I love God, and everything, sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows, and it's wonderful. But 
the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And so it is many times in our lives and our walk of faith, is it not? Our soul has little or no hunger for God because we're satisfied at the golden corral buffet of the world. While Jesus has the, the feast of filet mignon right in front of us. We're satisfied with the, the junk food of the world. And it just reminds me of this truth that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Not his gifts, <laughs> not his blessings, but him. And the fight of faith, brothers and sisters, is a fight to feast on all that God has for us in Christ Jesus. What we hunger for most is what we worship. And when God is, is the supreme hunger of our hearts, he will be supreme in everything. Psalm 73, 25 says this, whom, and I, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. Think about it this way. <clears throat> We've all had someone in our lives that we love deeply. You know, I've been deeply in love with Katie for over 32 years. It's a deep blessing in my heart. And there are many times when I long for her to the point of not being even interested in food. When I'm away traveling perhaps, and we're separated from each other for me having to travel. Many times when we were younger and not yet married, I would have to live uh, in another town while I was working, and she was back at home. I'd go all week or sometimes for multiple weeks without seeing her. No, no FaceTime video back then. <laughs> not even barely cell phones at that point. And even to talk was difficult because you'd make a long-distance call. You had to pay for that. <laughs> when you're a poor student, you know, that, that money racks up. You'd have to pay sometimes like dollar a minute sometimes, man. These young people don't have any concept of what I'm talking about. <laughs> but us older ones in the room, we remember those days like, uh, I'll, I won't keep you long because I know this is costing you. <laughs> and so we'd go for, for days at a time. And I, we would send letters. And I would look forward to those moments when we could talk on the phone or you know, sometimes, you know, I would, I would take one of those letters and instead of, you know, having lunch, I'd just read one of those letters. You know, I just had this homesickness in my heart to be with her. And I'd rather read a letter that she sent me than take time to eat a meal. And some of you have had feelings like that when being away from home, or maybe you've gone away, some of you, to a camp or something, or a trip from, away from your family, and you've been gone for a little while, and you experience the feeling of longing for home in your heart. You know, that, that's, that's a, a weak illustration compared to this kind of longing for Christ, but it's a good illustration. It's that longing and hunger and homesickness for God. 
That's what motivates fasting. Now, interestingly, it's not huge sins in our lives that keep us from this kind of hunger and walk from God or walk with God. It's not huge sins that are blocking that walk with God and that hunger for God. It's the ordinary things of life that pull our hunger away from God. And Jesus told another parable in Luke 15 that illustrates this point. He said, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent, and his, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, oh, I've bought a field and I must go to see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And yet another said, oh, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. There was a great banquet and a great feast to be enjoyed, but those who were invited to the banquet had worldly things that were more important than feasting with the Lord. They had fields and oxen and family to attend to, no time or interest in feasting with the Lord. Are not these all good gifts from God? They are. They're blessings from God. And if we're not careful, they can become our God. And so we must take our stand on the finished work of God in Christ and drink at the river of life and eat the bread of heaven and know that we, that we have found the end of all of our longings in this world. We found that in Christ. And let us be satisfied and filled in our souls with him with him. And so we come back to the question to Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? And evidently Jesus' disciples were not fasting while he was with them. In fact, Jesus had set them an example that earned him the reputation of being anything uh, but an aesthetic. So he's not, in, you know, Jesus isn't walking around, you know, cutting himself or putting ashes on his head and, you know, self, you know, pain and those, these types of things. That's what asceticism is. Uh, you know, to try to, like, earn favor with God. It's another practice people would have. He's the opposite of that. When he praised the ministry of John the Baptist, he said to the crowds, Hey, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, John practiced much fasting, and Jesus practiced little, if any, apart from his initial 40-day fast. So he's basically, I can't make any of you guys happy. <laughs> you know, even if I had fasted like John, you'd say I had a demon. I mean, come on. His teaching and his response to their question is that the Messiah has come. And his coming is like the coming of a bridegroom to a wedding feast. That's why he uses that illustration, and he uses it precisely and well. He says, this is just too good to mingle with fasting. And Jesus here, by using this illustration, he's making a tremendous claim for himself. Because in the Old Testament, God had pictured himself as the husband of his people Israel. <clears throat> and Isaiah 62 says this, As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. 
And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So he, he's making himself the center of that illustration on purpose. And these people know the book of Isaiah, so they know what he's talking about. Now the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-hoped-for prince and ruler in Israel has come. He's here. And he claims to be the bridegroom, that is the husband of his people, who will be the true Israel of God. And John the Baptist recognized this. When his disciples asked him about who Jesus was, John said this, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He used the same illustration. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist saw it. God, the one who betrothed Israel to himself in covenant love, has come. He is here. This is so stunning and so glorious and so unexpected in this form that Jesus said, you simply can't fast right now in this situation. It's not right. <laughs> who would fast at the wedding feast? <laughs> the bridegroom is here. It doesn't make sense. Fasting is for times of yearning and aching and longing. And that is not this time. The bridegroom of Israel is here, Jesus is saying. After a thousand years of dreaming and longing and hoping and waiting, he has come. So the absence of fasting in the band of Jesus' disciples was a witness to the presence of God in their midst. But look at verse 20, <clears throat> Mark chapter 2. He says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. And so he's saying, there will be a day when Jesus is no longer physically with them. He's referring to his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection and ascension to heaven to be with the Father once again. He's saying that right now, while I'm in your midst as the bridegroom, you cannot fast but I'm, I'm not going to be with you for forever here. Not right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go away. I'm not going to remain here. There will come a time when I return to my Father in heaven, is what he's saying, and during that time, you will fast. And, and brothers and sisters, that time is now, our present time, and it's been in the church age since he ascended to, to be with the Father in heaven. That's the time now. In this age, there is an ache inside every Christian that Jesus is not here as fully and intimately and as powerfully and as gloriously as we want him to be. We've all felt that ache in our souls. We hunger for so much more of his presence in our lives. And that is why we fast. That is why we, we fast. Look at verse 21. Now he gives two other illustrations here. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. 
So here's the first illustration. It's about clothing. He always uses simple little illustrations. I love that about Jesus. Uh, it's just about clothes. Everyone has put a patch on a, on a garment, and they get this illustration. Then he gives the next. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. So they didn't have bottles back then. So a wineskin is literally like a leather animal skin. Sometimes they even look like the animal. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> and they would put liquid into it water, wine, other things, because they didn't have bottles. <clears throat> so you don't put new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. That's a lose-lose. Lose the wine, lose the skins, that's bad. New wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, what is he talking about? What, what does he mean by this? Well, the patch of unshrunk cloth and the new wine represent that Jesus has come. He is here. The kingdom of God is here. The bridegroom has come. The old unshrunken patch of cloth and the brittle old wineskins relate directly to fasting as an old Jewish custom. The fasting that was the old Jewish custom is not suitable for the reality of Jesus' presence and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. You can't put that fresh new wine into that old wineskin. It's going to bust it. It shatters it. Completely shatters it. New wine calls for new fasting. The new fasting is based on the mystery that the bridegroom has come, not just will come. And the new wine of his presence calls for new fasting. In other words, the yearning and longing and aching of the old fasting was based on the glorious truth that Messiah had come. The mourning over sin and the yearning for deliverance from danger and the longing for God that inspired the old fa fasting were not based on the great finished work of the Redeemer and the great revelation of his truth and grace in history. These things were all still in the future, but now the bridegroom has come, and in coming, he struck the decisive blow against sin and Satan and death. So what distinguishes Christianity from Judaism is that the longed-for kingdom of God is both now present as well as future. The kingdom of God has come and will be fully consummated when Christ returns in the future. This is the center of Christian fasting. It's the decisive triumph of the Son of God, the Messiah, entering history and dying and rising from the dead and reigning over history for the salvation of his people and the glory of his Father. Christians are a people captured by a great hope a great hope in our souls that one day we will see and be enthralled by the fullness of the glory of God in Christ. And so we have a living and vibrant hope for the coming of the glory of God in Christ, a hope that's unshakably rooted in the past incarnation of Christ who offered himself once for all as a sacrifice for sin and then sat down at the right hand of God. This is the new wine he's referring to. New fasting is the fasting of faith. Faith. 
and we ache and yearn and fast to know more and more of all that God is for us in Jesus. And this new fasting will never be done for outward attention. You might say, well, how does that look? How do we even do that? Well, I don't have a specific four-step path for you. (laughs) And watch out for anybody that does. There's no magic formula. If I do this and rub the lamp this way, then God the genie will pop out and do these things for me. (laughs) Run away from anybody who talks to you like that. But we do have a, a, a few glimpses into what this should look like. This new fasting will never be done for outward attention. It's only driven by our hunger for the presence of God. And we know this from Matthew 6, 16, says, Jesus said this, when you do fast, so he knew we would, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. So clean yourself up. (laughs) Look like everything's good. (laughs) Don't go parading around trying to draw attention to yourself. Oh, I'm fasting. What's wrong, brother? Are you okay? Oh, I'm fasting. Yeah. I'm just going to get so close to God. I'm not going to eat for probably three days. You know, make a big deal out of it. Look how great I am. Jesus is like, no, don't do that. Wash your face. Don't do your fasting so that it can be seen by others, but only by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. There's a reward for fasting. And that reward is the presence of God. So if you do feel this hunger in your soul to fast and Say, I'm not going to eat lunch today or dinner today or whatever, maybe for a couple of days. If, if that hunger for God overcomes your soul and you decide to fast, you keep that between you and the Lord. That's between you and the Lord. Don't make a big deal out of that and draw attention to yourself and try to look self-righteous and better than other people and all those things. You just keep that between you and the Lord. That's the proper way. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. So my prayer for our church is that God might awaken us and awaken in us this kind of a hunger for himself, this new fasting. Not because we haven't tasted the new wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it and we long with a deep and joyful aching of our souls to know more of his presence and power in our lives. And he will give you that kind of a hunger in your soul if you ask him for it. And I pray that we will seek his face, that we will long for his presence, that we will cry out to him, and that he will satisfy our souls like nothing else in this world can. So let's pray together. Oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our souls thirst for you. Our flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Help us, Lord, as we go from here to continually hunger and thirst for and be satisfied only in you. And may the world see your presence in our lives. 
And may they know that you are God. And may they glorify your name and magnify your name, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.